Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers, and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, essayist, editor, teacher, and critic David Byspiel. Byspiel is the author of five books of poetry, including the collection The Book of Men and Women, which was named one of the best books of the year by the Poetry Foundation and won the 2011 Oregon Book Award in Poetry. He's the editor of the Everyman's Library Edition of Poems of the American South and Long Journey Contemporary Northwest Poets which received the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award. 
He's also the author of A Long High Whistle, for which he first appeared on Between the Covers, a collection of his pieces from his longstanding newspaper column on writing and poetry that the Library Journal called one of the best books about reading poetry you will ever find, and which won the 2016 Oregon Book Award. Byspiel is a former member of the board of directors of the National Book Critics Circle, and from 2012 to 2014 was the chair of its award committee in poetry. He oversaw the revival to national prominence of the magazine Poetry Northwest and served as its editor from 2005 to 2010. He is the founder of the Attic Institute of Arts and Letters here in Portland, Oregon, a haven for writers whose faculty has included Cheryl Strayed, Kim Stafford, Matthew Dickman, and John Raymond, among many others. And Byspiel writes the Poetry Wire column for the online literary website The Rumpus, as well as being a contributor to the New York Times, Politico, Slate, Poetry, American Poetry Review, and the New Republic. His honors include a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship, and a Lannan Fellowship. David Byspiel returns to Between the Covers today to talk about his latest book from Counterpoint Press, The Education of a Young Poet, a memoir that weaves reflections on the writer's craft with Byspiel's coming-of-age story as a writer. Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, says Byspiel's supple memoir of becoming a poet will surely inspire other writers to embrace the bodily character of writing and feel the power and sometimes the emptiness of the act of writing poetry. Writer Patrick Phillips adds, whether he is writing about poetry, politics, competitive diving, or the glories of great conversation, Byspiel's recurring subject is the tension between freedom and discipline between the sublime release of our own wildness and the precision that comes only from exquisite self-control. Part memoir, part ars poetica, the education of a young poet is a feast of language, of memory, and of insights into how one young writer came into his own. Welcome back to Between the Covers, David Byspiel. I'm so glad to be here. I'm just thrilled to do this. Thank you. So the opening of, of The Education of a Young Poet, I, I thought was really exhilarating and surprising both in content and form. For, for one, we start with the story of your life as a writer before you were born, but not with the writers who preceded you, but with your great-grandparents in 19th century Ukraine. Um, but what is most arresting is that we, we are told the story in the, in the first person plural. You, you are there with your great-grandfather, traveling with him on the train, experiencing his journey with him and commenting on, his, on both of your journeys together to us. And as the book opens, you declare, my life in poetry began when Harry Borg left Ukraine for America in 1910. So talk to us a little bit about how you came to anchor the book with this approach, how you found and, and why you decided to use this, this point of view and this voice. Yeah, what a great question. Um, well, let me answer that in a couple of ways. One is um, I wanted to write a book that um, articulated or characterized how I became a writer, but not through strictly literary means. So, you know, when I first wanted to become a writer, I loved reading Walt Whitman, I loved reading John Keats, and I could write a book about my literary influences, and that would be my education. But I wanted to write about my education that was non-literary, that had real, I'll just call them true literary sources, or they were resources for the literary. And in my family, the immigrant story 
of my great-grandfather coming to the United States from Tsarist Russia um, is an heirloom memory. And I think that when you have, when you possess those kind of memories, when that person is no longer here, and I knew that my great-grandfather until I was 12, um, then it's really your memory. I mean, it's, maybe it's your burden as well. And, and I know there are there's new research about this. Elizabeth Rosner has a book about mm-hmm. trauma and memory and how that's carried forward through your through your genes, really. Um, and so I, when I think of that memory of my great-grandfather coming to the United States, uh, moving to northern Iowa because he knew a guy, um, being a rag peddler, living alone, I think, well, I know that story so well. I, I didn't have to ask anyone in my family the details of that story mm-hmm. to write about it. That it is essentially my story, my history, and my story, and um, I just told it as if I was there because I am. I am there. It doesn't exist unless I'm there. Right. That's kind of my approach. Well, I don't normally have people read this early in the interview, but I would <laughs> love to just s- sort of set the stage and the tone by having you start out by reading. Uh, it's so great you picked this because this is how I've started a couple of readings, reading exactly this. Uh, oh, really? This excerpt. Yeah. Okay, great. <clears throat> Uh, the chapter is called Elma, which is the name of the small, small town in northern Iowa um, that my great-grandfather came to when he came to the United States. And I should say, too, that my people, you know, they were Orthodox Jews. They really weren't New Jersey, New York City, Long Island American Jews. They were Midwestern and Southern. So it's a very, I think, measurably different tradition. Uh, okay. Riding the trains across the heartland was really in vogue in those days. The cornfields were like a green ocean with shoals and shallows and waves. You could see humpback whales in the wind through the stalks, whales shivering in the underside of the Midwestern air. Then suddenly, like a lighthouse, there'd be a silo. The wind was soft as flannel, too. The oaks longed for the sparrows, and the sparrows longed for the sky, and the sky longed for a wife. Days of rain blushing with passion and a quivery blessing. Me and Harry would stare and stare, smearing our eyes against the windows of the train. We were travelers who noticed every sun-weathered brick in the towns. That summer, the Iowa rivers receded under the trestles from the spring floods that had blossomed in July. The headstones in the cemeteries long ago had taken to peeling. At night, the moon bristled over the open porches with the wicker chairs empty of their celibate lovers. The crossroads were like sideburns turned to gravel. We tumbled along the tracks, a little stoic, a little proud, a couple of puzzles needing to be solved. The dappled rows of shaggy corn sloping toward us plunged back into the velvet-green windy distances. The rattle of the train faded again and again to the muffle of our sleep. This was a time when polio was raging. There were 186 cases in Iowa that year. This was the summer of Haley's Comet, too. Me and Harry could see it all right, even from the train. It was no apparition. It was a match struck against eternity, an eyeless orphan. In 1986, I would look for Haley's Comet again. I was living in the haze of cheap weed in Boston on Glenville Ave near the expressionistic trees of Ringer Park. In Elma, though, Harry found Elma to have the kind of personality that was its own avant-garde. You couldn't erase Elma. Year after year, the population decreased, but still the town remained. 
1910, Elma was 800 people and about to be redesigned with an Orthodox Jew. Back then, Elma was a town of aching lookalikes. There was the aroma of wood burn and laundry on the line, white farmhouses and neat fences. It was a place you could live in all your life, but if you weren't born there, you were always an outsider. Every stranger could be a murderer. Harry arrived like new foliage. I don't know the first thing about Elma, really. The house me and Harry found had no broom and no locks, and the old siding clung to the building like a child to his mother's leg. We were like a work of art, Harry and me. When we were naked, you'd have thought the bottom of us was trying to escape the top. Our legs were deliberate, pointed, meager. Our chest was stout as a fire hydrant. It was tough to make us smile. This was so long ago. I can see one small room, that's it. It was a room where you could hear voices, but no one was there. There was a chair and table and a rug. The silence of Iowa could fill that room from floor to ceiling every hour. The silence was an unmentionable smudge. Only the habit of Harry's voice, talking Yiddish, could deflate the room's quiet and the distant bark of dogs. This room became the walls of every stanza, I've ever known. Harry talked to himself in those days in phrases like little sketches of poetry without dropping his chin into his hands in contemplation. He'd assemble each syllable into a chant, an intonation. He'd talk to himself in the kitchen at morning and on his mattress at night. He'd talk to himself in the stairwell and on the way back from the market. He'd talk to himself while standing alone in the room, I remember that. What a time in America, he would say to himself. No war beginning or ending. Look at these simple pleasures of light and wind and stars, he'd say. What could be more attractive than Elma, Iowa, he'd ask, that God in his wisdom saw to building it up around the new train depot. He'd want to smile, but it was a smile of cheap rent and cheap joy. There was dirt, all right, in 1910, reams of it. What is dirt? But life, he'd say. We've been listening to David Byspiel read from his latest book, The Education of a Young Poet. So we, we come to learn that Harry Borg speaking to himself in solitude uh, in a language that literally no one else in the town understands is one of the ways your poetic sensibility is, is formed. Yeah. And obviously, as you, you made a nod to, some of this is coming from family story from, a, from actual direct encounter with family members, some of it through your own imaginative faculties, maybe some of it through your genes. But, yeah. but can you tell us about the, the approach? Was there a research aspect to this? Um, did you go to Elma? Have you been to Elma? Um, were you looking at photos as you were writing um, or just pure memory? An imagination. Um, probably the latter. I mean, I have photos of my great-grandfather. I did know him um, until I was 12. He was 96 when he died. Um, my memories of him as a child were mostly him um, up in his room in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he lived, um, watching uh, game shows, or he loved watching uh, fake wrestling. Uh, with the Jewish forward, the Yiddish edition in his hands. Or, <laughs> and um, he liked to play gin rummy, so he'd play gin rummy with him. And uh, anything anything having to do with uh, synagogue or um, Jewish rituals. I remember that a lot about him. Um, 
But the story itself of him coming to Iowa is uh, a hand-me-down. I mean, I know that story. At least I know the skeleton of it. Uh, one of the things I tried to do, though, in the inventive part is, um, well, I have been to Iowa. I mean, I've been to Elma. I went with my grandfather once on a trip. And um, one of the things I tried to think was, well, if what you learn in the book is that my great-grandfather came to the United States in 1910, and his wife and his two sons remained in in Ukraine for 10 years. Um, they, uh, that's another story, how that, why that took them 10 years to come out. And um, I began to think, uh, well, if I was living in northern Iowa in this tiny town as a used rag peddler, I didn't hardly know the language. I knew two languages no one spoke in the town, Yiddish and Hebrew. I would probably be talking, probably be talking to myself yeah. all the time, out loud, just to keep myself company. And I, it, it struck me that, well, that is what poetry is. Um, being alone, talking out loud, more or less to nobody, in a language nobody understands. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it reminds me a little bit of Mary Rufel when she says that she's not writing a poem to an audience, but that she's completing a conversation between the lines. So she starts this conversation, and then it's within the line to the line that is the discussion is happening. It's not in reference to a, another person. Yeah, I think I agree with that to a point. I mean, uh, you spend so much time writing uh, on your own trying to you know, complement that uh, um, characterization. But there is a community. I mean, you do know that the language comes from others. The metaphors, the materials come from others. Um, the relationships, even to use her metaphor, um, between one word and another, between parts of a sentence and another part, between line and line, are have been gifted to us from others. And then eventually you're going to offer that back to the community. Right. So the, the myth of the lonely writer, um, the more and more I've thought about it and the more and more I've been engaged in you know, literary work, I realize you, you, you withdraw to, be, to solitude so that you can draw from your materials and resources of the community and then return that piece to the community. And you imagine Harry Borg with Yiddish and Hebrew, all of the ways those communities had gifted those words to him, even though they're not literally in Iowa with him. That's right. And, and the obligation in his uh, mind um, to participate in those rituals. I mean, <clears throat> uh, my people, when they were in you know, Ukraine, the, 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 the running joke in my family about that stuff is, and I'm a very non-participant, and we can talk about that, but um, is... Uh, they don't. They would say oh, we don't. We need no. We need no rabbis. Like who need, We don't need any speeches. Yeah. Like we're there to read from the from Torah. We're there to do the Haftorah, and we're there to do the prayers. And most of those are known by heart. Oh, not the Torah. I mean, that's that's learned. Um, and that's the participatory element, as, in addition to the domestic rituals. Hmm. Well, I, I want to pivot here and talk about another way in which you're like Harry. Um, when Matthew Zapruder was here to talk about why poetry, we talked about how he realized that his life decision, decisions, which seemed aimless and not building towards anything in any sort of conventional way, um, when he looked back, they felt like they were associative. Maybe, associ maybe he was being kind to himself, but like they were associative the way a mind moves through a poem. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they made me think of your epigraph by Jasper Johns. Uh, it says, I assume that everything would lead to complete failure, but uh, I decided that didn't matter. That would be my life. And that sentiment feels like something that unifies you and Harry as he hurdles into unknown Protestant Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you leave your childhood in, in a close-knit Jewish community in Texas and move to uh, what you perceive as a more bohemian yeah. lifestyle in Boston, mm-hmm. um, that the risk and promise of the gesture is what's important um, more than a plan and possible outcomes. Is that Does that seem yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, um, for... Uh, immigrants who came to the United States, the promise of America um, is um, iconic, right? And, and the um, false promises of America are iconic. Um, uh, for me, leaving Texas, I was on the run in a sense. I mean, I needed to get out of there. That's the subject of a book I'm working on. but um, And I needed to get into a place where I felt my own political identity and the sort of um, percolating artistic identity um, could could be found um, in some anonymity. Hmm. I mean, I think some of that's another parallel I had thought of, of that, you know, when Harry Borg arrives in Iowa, he could have stayed, I guess, in New York, and they would have had a great company of fellow travelers. Um, but... He knew. He knew. Uh, Say, my family. He knew a fella, and that <laughs> fella was in Iowa, and so he went to some to one person he knew where he could wow. be anchored. Um, Iowa must look a lot like the Ukraine, so it must have seemed familiar to him as well. Huh. Um, for me, going to Boston, I really did think I was um, escaping into my life. For a while, it took me some searching to find my fellow travelers, and uh, then we became quite a band. Yeah. Well, that's one of the one of the, I think, great kernels in the education of a young poet happens, in, uh, when you're having debates and conversations in Boston with some of your peers, mm. and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So, when we think about your uh, your assertion that life experiences is a primary wellspring of art, and it, it certainly of your art, um, I, I think of the ways that. Um, that differs from a lot of your classmates and maybe some of your teachers. Mm-hmm. So you're in you're in school in Boston in the '80s. It's sort of the uh, deconstructionism is at on a, on the ascendant. Uh, Derrida, Bart, and others. And in the book, you describe the scene um, with your friends and um, who argue that life is abstract and accidental, and that the role of reading was to see the insufficiency of language. And you talk about how you were taught that we should think farther and farther away from everyday human experience. Uh, And this is what you say to us in the book. Language never seemed lost to me, nor the world that it's meant to represent. It was as if these guys had been stood up by reality and so needed to blind themselves with weapons against the language of reality. Their heads were so filled with English department-isms that the small physical and psychic actuality of life was invisible. And I was hoping you could talk more about the way you came to differ from both them and, and your teachers. Um, was it something some something you simply discovered in the moment through contrast, um, that hearing the arguments that didn't resonate with you, you, you discovered your arguments? <laughs> Certainly I was contrary. Well, I can only say this in the retrospective. I mean, I, I don't know that I thought these things at the time, but much of my life um, 
was was um, organized around my body. I mean, that sounds funny to say it that way, but I was a competitive athlete. I went to college as as an NCAA Division One athlete, and so the physicalness of reality um, just seemed obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And I think different from from some of those guys. Um, also, you know, I learned when I learned to write. I mean, actually learned to write letters, the alphabet, I really, I do remember enjoying the shapes of the letters. They, they seemed like things to me. They seemed palpable. Um, I think I learned through the Palmer method. And I've actually, just as a, as a parenthesis, I've gone back to writing cursive, um, huh. much, somewhat uh, to be anti-technological, just to return to that pleasure again. My cursive is uh, illegible, but um, it does give me happiness. Um and I was also in an environment in which words were, because of my Jewish education, um, uh, you know, words were were the root to praise uh, for God. They were the root toward questions about faith. They were the root toward debate and argument. Um, and those words had multiple, multiple um Amplitudes, ambiguity was everything. Um, I mean, not in, in in addition to ambiguity of words, there were then the, the letters also represented numbers. Mm-hmm. This whole other subterranean argument of of Jewish um, debate that is almost mystical. And um, and I loved reading literature in English. I've uh, studied Latin. I mean, so I really cared about language in a way that I think my peers at the time were being trained to disassociate themselves from it, from their life. And that, I mean, this is, I'm not saying anything original when I say that the literary criticism of that era going up to the last 40 years or so has been so much about divorcing the conversation from the original book that's being read. And um, I just wasn't able to do that. I just wasn't capable of doing that as a failure in a way, but I just wasn't capable of doing that. Well, you bring up it, it, in that part of the book where we're we're seeing this debate for the first time, um, the ways in which you're differing from your newfound community in Boston. You bring up a poem by Robert Bly, uh, or you bring up the book Silence in the Snowy mm-hmm. Fields. How, how does that relate to um, to this question for you? If it does, I, I, I you mentioned it is the first book of contemporary poetry yeah. you read with any seriousness, but it also felt like it was tying into this question of um, of trust of language or not. Yeah, and Silence in the Snowy Fields, um, published, uh, I think, in the late 50s or early 60s by Robert Bly. Um, if not his first book, maybe his second book. I'm not sure. We could check that. Um, and it's a book that does a couple of things. One is it's so much about the landscape, the Minnesota landscape, the farmlands that he was living in, um, as um, dramatizing meaning. Um, the book is, on the one hand, the book is also um, a patron of Carl Jung and that there are archetypes, common archetypes in the world that uh, you see in the natural world. I think there's a quotation, uh, the The epigraph of that book is by Jacob Boheme. I have to double check that, we can check that, um, about the spaces between spaces that he was interested in. Well, that is what writing is you know so you have to have the thing is you have to have a thing on the one hand and a thing on the other hand to have a space in between them 
And those um, cultural critics were really interested in what happens when you remove the space between them, what's there? Well, their argument is nothing's there. Or, or what's there privileges something else that isn't there. And at that point, they've not, they've lost track of thing A and thing B, in my view. Mm. Um, and Bly, you know, he has a wonderful line from a poem called Driving to the Lackey Pearl River. It's my favorite lines of his. And it's simply, I am driving, it is dusk, Minnesota, period. That's the line. I am driving, it is dusk, Minnesota. Well, there is no, there is no hidden meaning in that. Uh, that is about... Uh, trend, that is about moving across thresholds of physical, geographical space, psychological space, time, and then the idea that Minnesota is a thing. The Minnesota is a psychic space. And um, you have to know what those things are. And so my view is you have to know what those things are, or you have to believe that those things are something. And the, my most pejorative way of putting this is deconstruction would have meant nothing to that gentleman in 1989 in Tiananmen Square standing in front of those tanks. And like, he's standing in front of those tanks saying, don't move, don't, don't come in here. And they, and they say, hey, that's just privileging, come in here, we're coming in there. <laughs> you know, they right. certainly had meaning to the, to the um, striking dock workers at, in Gdansk, right? They certainly have meaning for people who are trying to send messages out of t- a tyrannical, dictatorial countries. I mean, language has meaning. And they certainly have meaning when any deconstructionist says to his or her beloved, I love you. They are the least deconstructionist in that moment. Yeah. They really mean that. Right. If they mean that. And uh, so it seems to me to be a, a theory devoid of the human body and in some ways hostile to human experience. Well, I want to I wanna dig deeper into the issue of the human body. My last two guests, Eileen Miles and Ray Armentrout, um, we had an interesting discussion in both those conversations about the nature of self, and particularly with Armand Trout about how her work interrogates a notion of a unified self. Um, I don't know philosophically if there's a link between a distrust of a unified self and a distrust of language, or whether either of them feel, either of those poets feel about what they feel about deconstruction in particular. But it feels like you step around the question altogether in a way asking us to trust direct experience um, from our point of view. Um, in that line I quoted earlier where you, you extol the value of the small physical and psychic actuality of life, and later in the book you say, I was too suspicious of the detachments of theory. I hungered for what physically gave me pleasure. Language was one of those things. This idea of language is primarily pleasurable and also as physical. Um, it makes me think of corporeal writing, which seems to be on the ascendant now. I mean, it existed, um, but I, I wonder if you were a, if if you associate it all with corporeal what do you literature. Mean by that? Well, when I think of um, Lydia Yuknovich is a big proponent of embodied writing, and then um, often uh, feminist writers like Ellen Sitsu and other writers who um, were not in prominence necessarily in the same way Mm -hmm. uh, back in the day when deconstruction was at its height. But it feels like there's a rise of um, this notion of embodied writing now. And embodied writing means embodied in the narrative or that the body is central to the causes and effects of what's happening in the story or it's that the language is something that's embodied? I'm not... 
I'm not sure that I, I'm the best yeah. person to answer, but I wanna, one of the things I think about, which I often hear also, is when you talked about the tanks, when you think about like language as an act of survival mm -hmm. also, like that's language that is embodied, yeah. right? So language that is, um, that is also physical. Like for instance, um, uh, Alice Notley has this essay on, uh, on the issue of influence mm -hmm. called uh, Coming After, and um, she says a poetry career is in some sense an exploration of what sounds right in one's own mouth. And yeah. in a way that feels like that's like corporeal writing. Like, so like the embodiment of even when reading another poet, yeah. the, the actual physical enactment of that poem in your mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there. if that's what it is, yeah, I totally am with them on that. Um, for one thing, I think in in poetry in particular, but I suppose in 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 like the education of a young poet nonfiction. Um, well, let's just focus on poetry. the The human body is the instrument. Uh, the words, the lines, the stanzas, and so on—that's the notes. That's the musical notes, so to speak. And your voice. I mean, your physical voice. The the voice box is what you play to to bring to to utter and bring forward the language to get it to emerge into this into the air. If that isn't like chanting Torah, I really don't know what, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that's why that's that stuff has no vowels, no tropes. I mean, it's it's that's it's supposed to make it sacred. It just seems to be make it hard to read. <laughs> but isn't the idea that that the the breath of the individual standing before those vowelless words? They're, they're providing the vowels and thus the life to the words. That, that's the argument. That's the argument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a little bit of idol worship going on there as well. <laughs> um, but I do think that, you know, both the poet okay, and, and the reader, the, the reader of the poem, the player of the poem, have to speak the poem into, into the air. And in that sense, the words themselves are... Um, are um, the the music, they're the players in the on stage, they're the actors on the screen, they're the um, uh, trusses of the architecture. You know, I keep going on and on, right? They're the they're the um, charcoal of the drawing, and um, and without your voice, then they're just they don't they don't exist really. Um, it doesn't mean they can't to borrow the Mary Ruffel idea. They can't read themselves. Right. You know, the, the great books sit on the libraries and on the library shelf and tend to read themselves. And then we come along and get to overhear it or, and then try to speak it ourselves and then fail at that. I also think, on the other hand, writing of any kind of writing is, and here I would say most of my learning on this comes from a wonderful book by James Lord called A Giacometti Portrait, uh, mostly from Giacometti himself, Alberto Giacometti, which is, you have an idea of what it is you're trying to write. Then you have the thing you're actually writing. And then you have to make decisions about which one you're trying to fashion. Are you trying to fashion what it is you're trying to write? Or are you trying to fashion what it is you're writing? Hmm. And at some point, you recognize your limitations. And so you end up fashioning what it is you're writing. And then you become frustrated that you didn't do the thing you tried, set out to do. Every writer knows this. Which is to say... You're trying to embody, if that's the word, embody your vision. And the only way to dramatize that is, is 
through the language. But it's, it supposes, it implies you have a vision. Mm. It's, it implies that you think language can go in the direction of your vision, even as you admit the limit, your own limitations and the limitations of language. I would put most of my chips on your own limitations. Yeah, Language can do a ton. But because it can do a ton, English especially, can, can do a ton, it's unwieldy. That's a plus. To me, that doesn't, that doesn't, a, that doesn't take away from it. I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, um, <laughs> I'm not going to attack the messenger, so to speak. <laughs> it's just the language. And a writer try, tries to do it, tries to write something, a novel, a poem, a series of poems, a memoir, and you get to where you're getting. You've made all kinds of decisions along the way that you didn't include anymore or you avoided. And then you think, well, what do I want to do next? I want to go back and try it again, some other aspect of it. So I don't agree with, I forget who you said, it was a Ray Armentrout, about this whole figure or the that there's a wholeness. I actually think we're more fragmentary. Oh, no, she she believes that. Okay. She doesn't believe in the unified self. Okay, good. Uh, I couldn't imagine she did, given my knowledge of her work. But I do think that you're trying to ideally restore the unified self. It's an impossibility. Hmm. Um, if that's a wound, if that's a uh, disruption, if that's a evolution, right? if that's an emergence, I don't know, depending on people's own life and life story. But you can't get it all. You don't want it all. What, what boldness to think you could get it all. Right. And, you know, it's, I think, probably better to have some humility. <laughs> in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to David Byspiel about the education of a young poet. So, so there's, there's an interesting and, I think, productive contradiction around language in, in, in the book. At least I saw it maybe as one, and maybe you'll disagree with me. On the one hand, you talk about not ever being seduced by the idea that language is either suspect or insufficient. But on the other hand, many of the ways you imagine that your own ancestors have influenced you as a poet could be seen as failures of, of language for them. So we have Harry speaking out loud to himself in a language that no one else understands. And then his son, Joseph, your grandfather, when he comes over as a 10-year-old and is trying out with difficulty his Yiddish-inflected English, you say, from that, I discovered a writer will find his own voice in the distortions and discolorations of the mouth. And then your father, when he has an aneurysm and literally can't form intelligible language, this becomes another insight for you as a poet. And I wondered if you saw this as, as paradoxical, that language is not insufficient or a suspect, but, but at the same time that it's in the failure of, of the language of your ancestors that you're finding these poetic insights. Yeah, um, I think it's um, insufficient, but it, but it's not suspect. I mean, I do think that there's um, great earnestness that most people have in trying to say what they mean. So you're seeking out something from the language rather than punishing it hmm. theoretically, saying, mm -hmm. well, I can't do it, therefore it's insufficient. Well, there's another way of thinking that it's insufficient, therefore how can I sufficientify it, you know? Right. Um, that's a good, I think that's a good distinction. You know, and that may just be a, a predisposition, a temperament. Uh, maybe the glass is half full, you know. Uh, uh, about the other part, about the, then the failures of, of language. 
um, again, I would turn those around in my, in my way of looking at it. Um, my great-grandfather's silences, and I really think silences is something I learned writing this book about. A, a great resource for me as a writer was, was understanding silence, was participating in silence. That I guess a blank piece of paper as a metaphor for. Um, uh, my great-grandfather's uh, relationship with failure of language, as you call it, was he didn't need the other language. He had a true language that he, that he valued. Um, Hebrew uh, and biblical Hebrew, liturgical Hebrew. Um, for my great grand, for my grandfather, um, uh, he was very comfortable with his his um, broken English. He was very proud of it, in a way. Um, and yet, he he was a person who could, you know, be sitting in the synagogue, and some uh, usher could come up to him and say, "Hey, we need someone to do the haftorah today," and he goes, "Sure." And go up there and chant it cold. Wow. Um, I don't think people who aren't Jewish would realize how how impressive that would be. It's incredibly impressive. And now, granted, granted, he knew the tropes, which is how you learn to chant right. chant them. But he also knew that very few people knew the tropes. <laughs> so if he wasn't quite sure, he would just make it up. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't making up the words. Yeah. Um, but he was totally confident. He'd go up and bring it forward. Um and um, and they would come off the come off of the beam like a rock star, because everyone knew that he hadn't done any preparation, and he had a great voice too. Um, my father, when he had a stroke in his mid forties, lost almost the entire use of his language for months, and then still to this day he's still alive. He's near eighty, um, still has uh, uh, aphasic, and. Um, there too, there I think the metaphor starts to come together. The 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 debate between the insufficiency and sufficiency start to come together, is because his root was, I can, I can hear rattling around in my head, what the language is, much as I was describing about writing, but when I go to speak, it comes out as mud. I mean, it doesn't come out anything like what I'm thinking, and if you heard him, you'd think he was a drunk. You think he was just. Uh, falling over drunk and so he's earnestly trying to say a thing and because he can't say it he begins to work laterally and associatively and find other means to express the thing he wants and once you recognize he's talking in a form of code uh, where he's where images are inferential where um, he uses uh, a single word as a shorthand for an argument of an entire concept. In the book I talk about, he used to reference the, the communism and the whole Soviet system and the Cold War. He would simply call it the red. Yeah. Rather than dwelling on the failure, which I think is some of the argument, you know, to, to portray it in their light, some of the argument of the deconstructionists, these other examples are trying to overcome the failure, even, even though ultimately all you're doing is trying to overcome. Uh, my father, um, okay. my father uh, had a stroke in his mid forties. He was a very healthy person, very athletic. He was a former naval officer and a businessman, and um, he was in the middle of a daily run. Ran three miles a day most of the most days, and I had an aneurysm and collapsed, and spent three months in the hospital. Okay, 
It wasn't until three months later that my father was released from the hospital, and I listened to his muddled talk as if I were listening to a secret language for which there was only the code you created to break it. But it was still unbreakable. His voice was spooked, and the few words he could stutter and coax out of his mouth were spooked too and quickly evaporated or were thrashed in the air. It was now understood that I would do most of the talking when I was with him. Words would swoop from his brain to his mouth and then get trapped there. And then the words would fall back as though as through a trap door into some unknown region of the brain. He confused my name with my brother's names, but the names of objects, animals, plants, trees, streets, cities, people, even friends he'd known a lifetime over, these words eluded him like birds disappearing into the air. He was, of course, still an adult father, but he could hardly speak his own language and found the whole process of using his words a disturbing trial. There was a great labor in his effort to speak, and it came from a love of meaning so unlike what the poets talk about, and so contrary to the arguments out there that language has no meaning. Once he wanted to talk to me about politics, which we enjoyed. He was trying to say something about the Soviet Union, and he just started calling the Soviet Union, and anything having to do with what he perceived to be the communist menace, the Red. I didn't get it at first, and then I did. Coming upon metonymy as his new way to talk, at least with those who were aware of this special shorthand like the red for Soviet Russia, was like finding ways for language to pose for meaning rather than just be literally representative. The loss of language was irreversible, but metaphor, double-think, and the temptation to reanimate existence was not. Just as John Keats says that, quote, a man is capable of being in uncertainties and mysteries and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, I was given an opportunity to learn that the unknowable must be comprehended every day. Even learning something new or relearning something once known as my father was trying to do again with his use of speech doesn't negate your sense of wonder. The world is full of obvious things, Sherlock Holmes says in The Hound of the Baskervilles, which I was reading around the time my father got sick, which nobody by any chance ever observes. This sense of being observant was the same with learning to listen and talk to my father. Before his illness, there were words in the stream of his consciousness. He could see them in the currents of his mind as they polished themselves up into his mouth. The words were like maps of a life unfolded into being. Now the roots were more like labyrinths. He could neither retrieve the words nor put them back. All that floated there was the mystery. In the presence of all that, I discovered, too, that there are mysteries residing in the consciousness of my own mind that don't want to get out of the way of, that I don't want to get out of the way of. I was having a fresh understanding that pain and coming into consciousness are connected. As much as I might try to avoid the pain or face it, imagination alone would not bring, well, I didn't know what. Enlightenment? Maybe. We've been listening to David Byspiel read from The Education of a Young Poet. I'd like to talk a little bit more about 
about uh, Jewish identity in relationship to the book. Uh, there's an interesting um, there's an interesting way in which you're both sort of it feels like you're you're fleeing a certain type of Jewishness by going to to Boston to a more secular and bohemian uh, community and finding more genuine and immediate love of Latin than Hebrew, for instance, but also sort of attaching this uh, impulse to leave and explore to being Jewish at the same time. So there's a move, it feels like there's this move away and this move toward. Um, But there's this one line in the book that uh, that I wanted to ask you about in relationship to what you said very early in our interview about Jews from the Midwest and the South. So you say, uh, feeling alien within the familiar became one of the first stances I undertook when I began to write poems. For me, as a Jewish person who grew up in Colorado, I recognize that as a Jewish experience of being an insider-outsider, but also being a Jew not in mm-hmm. L.A. or Philly or, or New York. Um, and I think of that Lenny Bruce joke that a Catholic from New York is more Jewish than a Jew from Montana, and I've always felt like the opposite was true, that a Jew in the Midwest <laughs> would feel more Jewish, would f- would feel that marginalization in a, in a way that would heighten their Jewishness rather than the reverse. But I was curious if you were even talking about that when you were talking about feeling alien in the familiar. Was that a Jewish thing or not so much a Jewish thing? I, I don't know the answer to that, really. I mean, I think that Lenny Bruce is as um, like that uh, famous uh, poster of New York and uh, of America, which is all New York and a little bit of California and the rest of the country. <laughs> um, uh, in my own, uh, maybe I can describe this by you know telling the story a little bit of my own exodus. Um, uh, I, 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 and I'm writing about this in another book. Uh, one of the things I discovered in this book when I finished was, wow, it's pretty crazy. You wrote a book about how you became a writer and very little about your childhood. Mm. And I allude to that in the book in a couple of places that there's another story here. And that isn't directly, it, it dawned on me that, well, if writing about your childhood isn't one of the answers to how you became a writer, what is it the answer to? And what question do you have to ask to get that answer? That's what I'm working on now. I think that, um, this is my estimation, I guess. I don't have direct experience, but I think that when you're in a community, um, say, of the, the Jewish experience in New Jersey, New York, and so on, and there's such um, uh, so many possible ways to be uh, a participant in that community, um, and so many people who are taking care of the core behaviors of that community. Perhaps you can feel that uh, you don't, you're not needed in a way. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood in 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 um, Southwest Houston in Texas that has in it that the synagogue we belong to, a conservative synagogue, is the largest conservative synagogue in North America. It has right now over 3,000 families. Oh, wow. When I lived there, it was probably around 2,500 in the 1970s. About a mile up the bio, Brace Bio, um, this neighborhood's called Meyerland, is a, a reform synagogue. It's still there. It's the oldest congregation in Texas. It had about 2,000, 2,500 families. And then 
across the bow from there was the Jewish community center about the size of the Roman Colosseum. And my family lived <clears throat> literally and certainly figuratively in the center of these three institutions of, of Southwest Houston. And I have a, a friend who um, told me recently that, and he and I went to the synagogue to school, um, uh, said to me recently that he was 17 or 18 until he dawned on him, he thought Houston was something like 80, 90% Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so there's quite a thriving community there. And, and big. And big. Yeah, and it was and it was geographically centered in this one neighborhood. Um, so my experience might be a little different than others, you know, who were cobbling together these um, small synagogues of maybe 50 families or 200 families or something. So your grandfather in <laughs> Tulsa, that would yeah. that different experience. Yeah, um, and he was in the center of it. Um, uh, but he tells a story, I write about this in the, in, not in Education of a Young Poet, where living in Elma, Iowa, uh, or Des Moines, they would then go to New Hampton, Iowa, where there were enough Jews in New Hampton for uh, uh, services, for high holidays, maybe 10 or 12 families. They had a cemetery even. And then these um, Jews from these independent little towns from all over would all drive into New Hampton. They'd be coming all from all over Iowa, all over Missouri, all over um, Nebraska. There was a whole network of these um, Jews isolated in the world um, who would come together for um, major religious holidays. And they really were preserving, or they really were in a, in a diasporic environment. Whereas I think um, perhaps the Jews of New York, New Jersey were able to integrate in a different way, at a different pace. Uh, that seems measurably different, don't you think, from your own experience? I don't know about your experience in Colorado. What was your experience? Well, we didn't have a big community. There's a big community there now, yeah. but not in the 70s and 80s. There was a quite small community. We yeah. were we were strained. We were feeling alien in a familiar place. Yeah, and why was it familiar? Because it was America? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we were Reformed, secular Jews, yeah. so we weren't or growing up Orthodox. Yeah, and um, I think that... Um, in my case, I felt alien inside of it. Um, um, Could you read the, um, the, the I marked out a, yeah. a small section on, on page 47. I think that would be a great lead into that. Okay. Uh, this is a chapter, um, I worked in a bookstore and I lived in Boston in Kenmore Square, which was kind of kind of scuzzy when I lived there. Now it's all owned by BU and all fancy pants. Um, and it's about um, writing about um, the different books in my life. And there were a lot of books in our house, for sure. Now, we weren't, it wasn't an intellectual house, but it was a, a house that valued reading and everyone read. And um, this is my appreciation for being in, in synagogue often. Um, there was the Siddur, the Jewish prayer book. I held in my lap Friday nights or Saturday mornings at Congregation Beth Yashurin on Beechnut Street in Houston. The rough, hardbound cover always felt like a rugged block of black stone from a destroyed cemetery, a stone that had been passed around hand to hand for thousands of years. Nothing in the sitter led me to radical amazement, not once, but the shapes of the Hebrew letters and the translations in English offered me a route into a pilgrimage of language that I gladly took. 
The wonder I was expected to express toward God, I found myself showing toward words alone. While those around me were engaged in prayer and song and praise to God, I usually, especially as a teenager, was aware that the words were inviting me into something unutterable, into something beyond the limits of language. Abraham Joshua Heschel says, In our own lives, the voice of God speaks slowly, a syllable at a time. But I wasn't hearing the words as gods. Instead, I was hearing them as human creations. I was becoming awed by the wide horizon of that speech that arose out of an individual life that lived in a single era and generation. Somewhere off in the horizon of the inner life of words, I felt, were things of common significance and complex meanings. We're listening today to David Byspiel read from The Education of a Young Poet. You say in that section that you, you didn't have an, ever have any radical amazement and engagement with, with Hebrew or being in synagogue, but it felt like, I don't know if it's radical amazement, but it feels like something of that sort is happening for you in Boston with politics. And you were at Boston when Howard Zinn was teaching there, leading protests. You studied with the cultural critic Henry Giroux, who argues that for the Union of Critical Theory and Social Action. And when you read the book, The Pedagogy of the, of the Oppressed, you realized that um, language could not be neutral. Uh, some of your friends argue literature and local politics don't belong together. <laughs> and you say quite differently in the book. You say, so much of politics is symbolic speech in the service of the syncopations of the lives we actually live. But the ways we gather to vote is with our bodies. It's the dance that goes along with those rhythms. It's like a poem in some ways. It feels like this other area, kind of like the way you, you make language part of the body. It feels like you're making politics part of art and art part of politics, or at least at this time period in your life. It feels like they're in a melting pot together. Was this an easy or uneasy marriage at, at the time for you? Um, I think um, it was uneasy. I mean, I was a political person. Um, I had worked on a couple campaigns even as a teenager, I mean, as a volunteer, running a campaign, um, you know, making phone calls and handing out flyers and stuff um, for liberal candidates, um, which was, you know, a losing battle in Texas in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, As Molly Ivins used to say, the progressive had the most fun in Texas because we were always losing and you had to have fun or you would you'd be in tears all the time yeah um so i wanted to be a political person i was a political person Uh, my family liked politics um and liked to debate it it was a it was a topic of dinner um and my interest in the in in the arts uh, beyond being an audience member um uh, uh, beyond being a patron uh as a maker of some kind was something i really had to do somewhat secretively, Uh, not because there was great opposition, but mostly people were befuddled. They didn't understand what that kind of life would look like, and neither did I. Um, And therefore, it was unknowable, and so that door should be closed. Mm. You should go an unknowable route that can provide you with a life that would be recognizable to people who were generally... um, uh, business oriented. 
can you can you talk about your impulse to memorize political speeches? So you memorize Robert Kennedy's speech when MLK is shot, and mm -hmm. you m memorized Ted Kennedy's eulogy of his brother. Um, what what's going on there for you that your memory not just inspired by these speeches, but um, finding yourself um, memorizing them and speaking them and. Yeah, I think um, a lot of these things all uh, that we've been talking about are all of a piece. You know, the um, lonely uh, immigrant speaking memorized prayers um, out loud. The um, young poet memorizing lines and sharing them with people, yeah. right? Um, the uh, the citizen who's influenced by the great rhetoric of the Kennedys. And being from Texas, the, 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 the aura of the Kennedys had its own bizarre twist because of Dallas in 1963. Um, and, you know, growing up in a time in which Texas was changing and becoming very conservative, um, I took uh, Jack Kennedy, President Kennedy, um, Senator, the Senators Kennedys, um, as models for how to... Um, be a liberal-minded person. Uh, and again, it was a way of being a little contrary. No one else I knew was interested in the Kennedys. Um, and I was motivated by them. I was inspired by those speeches, um, even the sad ones. Um, uh, the, those who, uh, the eulogy, you know, um, those who knew him and loved him and take him to his grave today know that what he was to us and what he was to others will someday come to pass for all the world that Ted Kennedy says was super inspiring to me because the, the ideals of social justice, civil rights, ending the war in Vietnam, which was uh, part of the argument then, being pacifist generally, that's what was probably how I extrapolated from that, um, uh, was uh, seemed bohemian to me, you know, in a way. Yeah. Like, what, how can you as a young person do anything with those ideals? You can separate yourself from the mainstream in the, in the service of those ideals. And it seemed to me that, it must have seemed to me that art, writing poems, being literary, being interested in um, a kind of, uh, what does William Clarice Williams call a poem, news that stays news, was a, was a preserve for those ideals. To return to this uneasiness around this impulse towards the political and your impulse towards art, uh, you wrote a piece in the Rumpus called Against Hatred that is about the Trump election and which looked at poems read by poets from Robert Frost to Maya Angelou at presidential inaugurations, as well as how to be a poet in the time of Trump. Uh, and unlike these inspiring political speeches, you find that many of these presidential inauguration poems are pretty forgettable. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about that essay uh, and what prompted it and... <clears throat> And some of your thoughts about it in in light of being a poet now under the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Um, I'm uh, opposed to his um, holding holding the presidency. Uh, I mean, according to our system, he won. Though <laughs> in my house, there's some argument about that. Um, uh, but I find myself to be um, proud to be part of the resistance. Um, he says that. Um, Writers are um, the enemy of the people. I'm, I'm proud to be an enemy of the people in that case. If that's what it is, 
Um, I also had questions with the Obama administration, though I've supported uh, President Obama. Um, and I think that generally uh, literature and the arts are a way of um, repairing uh, this uh, gash, as I read the Trump administration. Um, it's a gash against into uh, acceptable forms of democracy that we have nurtured in this country and not always succeeded at, uh, failed a lot of the times at, but continue to nurture the ideal um, and try to um, move our country in that direction. Um, I think that uh, poetry is a way of of soothing the gash. I'll, I'll stop there. I'm not quite sure I'm dr directly answering your question. Uh, oh, you were asking about the rumpus piece. Yeah. Yeah. Those inaugural poems are dreadful. Um, uh, Frost didn't read the one he wrote. Uh, the, it was too bright. The paper's rumpling. Everyone knows the story. And then he declaimed this one he'd been declaiming <laughs> for decades whenever he, you know, was at an event. Uh, the Gift Outright. Uh, the Gift Outright is not a progressive poem in the least. Uh, it is a nationalistic poem, um, and it is a poem which accepts the, um, uh, is unquestioning about America, about um, America stealing lands from people, murdering people, and so on uh, in, in North America. Um, Maya Angelou's poem fails uh, for me because of its rhetoric. I mean, it's just in the level of the poem. It's inspiring, uh, and it's empowering, um, but it also feels... Um, like the worst kind of political speech, propaganda. Uh, Miller Williams wrote one, which is pretty interesting. Um, uh, to go through, go through them all. Um, uh, Richard Blanco's poem, I thought, also fell more on the um, my Angelo side, which is overused rhetoric, the one nation, the, everyone's one thing, which seemed um, hopeful, uh, but not, but doesn't didn't stir in the complexities of America that we know exist and, and the conflicts that we're certainly experiencing now and have for the last 25 years in our national p political, symbolic, televised, corporatized politics. Well, to, to continue on the, the rumpus tack, we, you also have another series, uh, The 21 Poems That Shaped America. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd love to talk about a, a couple of them. Uh, the, poem you, the poet you start with is Etheridge Knight in his poem, The Idea of Ancestry, and you talk about it in relationship to some uh, articles by ta Coates. Part of the reason I wanted to bring it up is when I think of JFK and, and Robert Kennedy, and when I think of Whitman, I think of people invested in sort of an aspirational vision of America, the American dream. Um, but when I think of ta Coates, I think of his argument that this dream was never for the non-immigrants in America. Like this, uh, African Americans and natives have never been part of this dream, and that perhaps the promise of Whitman is a false promise, though he has he doesn't say that explicitly. Um, but maybe that he's saying that it's a white person's dream. But there's a part in the Etheridge Knight poem the, that you you talk about where he, that reminds me of your life. He says, "Each fall, the graves of my grandfathers call me." The brown hills and red gullies of Mississippi send out their electric messages galvanizing my genes. 
but Etheridge Knight's course, obviously, um, as you can, I hope you'll talk about a little bit, his course as a poet, he careens to disaster, as does the person in the poem. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, this series and maybe your thoughts about um, these aspirational visions of the, of the United States and then the people that don't feel like they're included in them, which it feels like you're including in 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 this series that you're doing. Yeah, uh, he wrote that poem when he was in prison, um, and it was a way of creating a. I, I read that poem as um, a way of accounting for. Uh, and tallying his own private history, his body history, his personal history, where he fits in and where he fails to fit in, and where he uh, asserts that they fit in with him. Um, And uh, inside of that is the argument, I think, it's often read in that poem, is that that complex uh, history of... um, I mean, his arrest was weird. I mean, everything about this is weird, and and his incarceration seemed, to me at least, in in, in the light of the terrible incarceration story we have going on in this country in the last fifty years, um, and its predisposition against African American men, um, that it epitomizes the idea that he was ripped out of this dream, uh, notwithstanding Tana Heisey Coast's. Um, uh, spent on the word dream. <clears throat> um, and he was trying to assert that even that is part of the dream. That's how I read the poem. Um, and so that to me it feels aspirational, mm-hmm. right? Is that what you're getting at? Um, well, I wasn't, I was just curious where, where you, what your feelings were. When I think about your inspiration with these speeches, for mm-hmm. instance, and then also a love of Whitman. Yeah. Um, and then that you're choosing these poems that I wondered whether they were, they were um, t- both Ta-Nehisi Coates and then the night poem, whether they were not participating. Like you're also attracted to um, foregrounding these poems mm-hmm. in this series about what shaped America that maybe these people wouldn't argue that they're part of the aspiration. I, I don't know. Yeah, that I don't know the answer to. I mean, um, Whitman's, it's, I, think, I, I think it's true. It's hard to find anyone today who could be as optimistic as Walt Whitman about the, the possibilities of America. Now, I do think that our politics needs that kind of rhetoric. And for, I'd say, the bulk of his public um, utterances, Barack Obama is the politician most recently who is the most Whitmanic in trying to talk about not the, goal, not the accomplishments so much, well, to talk about both the accomplishments of the American idealism and the idealism of American idealism um, that we're uh, striving for the more perfect union, but we're not at the p- more perfect union. There is no such thing as it. It's always beyond the next horizon. Tana Hasty Coates seems to me is saying there's no horizon, and and that he's outstanding at the analysis and at the um, surgical, and he creates an argument that is often um, unbreakable. Um, but he doesn't ask, and his, he says he's not interested in asking the next question, the the civic question, which is, you've 
um, diagnosed the problem, it's centuries long. And on the other side of it, as he says, uh, um, that you have this uh, white uh, population that even though, you know, the kind of working white population that even though it hasn't tried to restore its, the only capital it has, which is educating its young, educating the young. Like, like if you don't come from landed wealth, if you can't pass down wealth, then most people in America who are want to pass down some legacy to their children pass down an education. That's the capital we have. And you spend your whole adult life raising, earning money to pay for the education so that children can then be, can go forward into the world of what you created. And you have advantages in that world. You have advantages of lending, housing, education, uh, relationship to the state, so on. But if you don't continue to do the education part, you can't, you no longer, you give up that capital, that future capital. But Ta-Nehisi Coates doesn't, in my reading of him, and I read him a lot, I like him, try to say, well, what's the, how do we resolve that in relation to the systemic violence, in relation to the um, police violence, in relation to um, incarceration, and in relation to reparations? Well, he does speak to reparations. Yeah, I guess he does he, speak to reparations. That may be the one that count, may, counterpoint right. where he actually does yeah. argue for yeah, fair enough for the, right. for the reparations. Yeah, and yet I I've read him him or heard him say even if we got to reparations or to some kind of reconciliation process, truth and reconciliation process, um, that would not change the dream hmm. or the false dream. Right. Well, let's let's move in a little more to, to your education. It comes, your actual literal poetry education comes late in the book. Mm -hmm. We're looking at, as you said, a lot of these non-literary influences and the ways in which they influence you. But we do also look at the books that you love and your experiences in classes. And when you decide to take your first poetry class, you're required to submit poems even though you, you hadn't written a poem yet. And you say a couple things about this class that I'm curious about. You study Dickinson, Whitman, Keats, and Hardy, and you say, it seemed to me these poets had over-inflected their faith and sentimentality. They could be brilliant. They could be spurred on by the magic of the imagination, but their wisdom was questionable. And then later you say, reading back and forth between the Augustan poets of Rome and the romantic and modernist poets of England and America, I suddenly began to lose sight of the connection amongst them all. There was a fracturing, and I felt forced to choose between what I knew and what I dreamed about. I was curious if you could maybe elaborate on both of those. Yeah, uh, I found myself often in my early reading, and I'm susceptible to it now too, which is, oh, I want to do that, you know, I think, I want to, I want to write with that kind of optimism of Whitman, or I want to write with the sort of pure perfection of, of um, truth as, and beauty as Keats, or um, I want to be engaged socially as Langston Hughes or uh, Adrian Rich, or I want to um, be inventive in, in language and style as Marian Moore or T.S. Eliot. I'm kind of staying in a certain you know, era of my early reading. Or I really am susceptible to the um, uh, imaginative heartland and and uh, Heart of Darkness of Wallace Stevens, um, where I think, I just want to invent the world. 
uh, that is drawn from the world. Or I think, I really just want to write about my, you know, dog. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I was often easily pulled from one direction to the other. And um, that's what I meant by the fracturing. I couldn't begin to stop seeing them as differentiated, and therefore I sort of lost I didn't know what I was supposed to do, and I write about that later, about trying to put on all this different garb, um, and it feels like you're, you know, in Venice in wintertime, and you didn't bring any warm clothes, mm. and so you're, you're wearing your pajamas, and you're putting jeans on over that, and a jacket over that, and a scarf, and a hat, and you're, you're being trying to be nine different kinds of styles at once uh, until you can strip down and become yourself. Um, well, let me let me inhabit your voice yeah. for a minute and just read you another another okay. thing from the book because I think it it touches upon this. Like most beginning writers, I hadn't learned how to translate boredom or desire. I hadn't learned how to just be with words, to exist near poems with a high degree of comfort with uncertainty. My sense of formality, learned in my studies of poetry in college, as much as in my private readings, made it difficult for me to be natural in a poem. For a while, I was just acting in my poems. I was guilty about that, too, like I was using models to dress up into my own consciousness. I hadn't realized how the elemental imitation, how elemental imitation was. I was constantly disappointed in what I was able to write and say. And then later you say, when I started to write, I only knew how to make guttural sounds. As these, I felt I was copying from the past. Style and idiosyncratic little maneuvers I used in place of honest thought and feeling. I disassociated my inner life from the skills I was carving out from other poets and the books I kept at my desk, and that the and then uh, that the literary overtook the honest. Um, how did you overcome this conundrum? I don't, I don't know that I have. <laughs> well, I mean, is it just the act of of repetition of of, of yeah. writing and writing? I think so. Yeah. Showing up. And yeah. I think I talk about that in the diving part of the book too, which is um, just appearing to. To the, to the language uh, as often as possible, as frequently as possible, and with the understanding that you're not going you to get it, and just being comfortable with that, of um, generating once one hour and analyzing and revising another hour, not trying to do those at the same time, which I think a lot of beginning writers struggle with. Um, have I figured it out? I've become much more... Um, Things go well for me. I put it this way. I feel like things go well for me in my writing when I don't know what I'm doing. And I mean, not entirely don't know what I'm doing, but when I get myself lost a little bit or um, when I don't know the outcome of what it is I'm making. What's the thing Yale Doctorow says um, about writing a novel that's like driving across the country at, in the middle of the night with, with just the headlights on? That's right. You, don't, you can only see as far as the headlights but you can make the whole trip that way. And I have learned that in some ways trying to get back to where I'm just in the moving from one sentence to another sentence, one line to another line. This refers back to the Mary Ruffle, I think. Um, and not trying to get too far ahead of what I can see. Um, things tend to go better. Huh. Uh, anywhere, Anytime I sort of pull back like a long cinematic shot, try to see the whole thing, or think, oh, I know what I'm doing now, and this is all my knowledge that I can apply to this. Uh, this is how an ode works, and now I'm going to make it the way it works. That's helpful at one point, but if you're trying to do that while you're writing, while you're generating, 
um, for me, it, it things start to become willful. Well, I mean, this gets back to uh, this tension between freedom and discipline, mm-hmm. which uh, I think it was Patrick Phillips yeah. who says about your book. But also we see in the ways you draw parallels with diving where you're practicing at a you're competing at a national level and you're there's a ton of discipline and, and repetition in that discipline. But then there's the the uh, indeterminate um when you're suspended in air, nope. that what happens when you're actually doing that one specific dive. But I, um, I wanted to come back to the Alice Notley that I was yeah. talking about in relationship to this, because this one quote that I just read of you, where you're talking about a sense of formality, maybe inhibiting the, the na- feeling natural within, within the form. Yeah. Um, and she talks about an opposite thing. And I'm not sure they're contradictory. I wonder if they're part of this tension between freedom and discipline. And I just be curious um, where she's talking about um, poets who aren't that versed in the formal, who are imitating formal moves of poets that they admire solely through intuition and through hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the possible downside of not having the formal. So I'm just going to read what she wrote and, and, and you tell me what you think. <laughs> okay. Contemporary metrics is all done by ear on a level of intuition. Thus it's achieved a metrics or sound through a process of imitation. In every part of poetry, in every school or division or style, a poet gets a line or practice, as I did, by imitating other people, other sounds. Poets used to do that too, of course, but not to the extent that we do now, because they also had the poetic foot to imitate. Various feet in various relations, a shining grid. What I suspect is that if you're imitating a poet, not a measure or a particularizable music, your own music becomes less precisely or minutely articulated, broadens or blurs. You go for a sound in general, hope you can bring it off. You perceive it in the arc or winding or blunt straightness of the whole line. It almost feels like she's saying that if you imitate a poet, but you don't really know what the poet's doing except through the sound, you're doomed to imitation in a way through the lack of you being able to get specific with your brush strokes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I didn't know, I mean, it seemed like the mirror image of what you were saying in a way. Perhaps. Um, i trying to think of what I, my many feelings are about that passage. Um, on the one hand, I think that poets who are, the she's referring to contemporary poets who are, um, as she says, uh, organically, and, you know, following this, uh, following the, the traditions of pattern or unpatterned meter, um, is not accurate entirely in my in my view. Um, poets, the contemporary poets, she's, uh, you know, alerting us to, are imitating unmetrical writing. Uh, and there are, though there isn't much in the work of categorizing it, um, there are schools of unmetrical writing. The Alice Notley school, let's call it, um, tries to work with a very flat style. Um, the Ray Armantrout, the people you've mentioned today, Ray, Ray Armantrout, even flatter style. And um, highly civilized, uh, her style, which means to me um, a lot of Latinate languages and a lot of um, twisting of a twisting of the parts of words to get new collaborations. 
Um, but we could keep moving along to other poets who are closer to the metrical histories that she's um, um, identifying. So these younger, these contemporary poets are imitating meter. They're imitating irregular meter. I think she would agree with that, I think. What do you gain by knowledge of those irregular meters as a poet? What do you gain by knowledge of con, uh, historical meters? What do you gain by knowledge of classical meters? You gain knowledge, right? You gain tools and ideas and, and um, things and materials to make decisions about your own writing. Um, we all do it. In fact, we arrive, and I think she's right about this, we arrive with these tools already, but only to you, for you and I to talk, not to make a poem. Now, if your art is, well, you try to get your poem to sound as much like speech as possible, then, yeah, you think, well, I already know how to talk. I don't need to do any reading at all, hmm. right? Um, and I certainly face that often with um, poets I've worked with. Uh, they're much more interested in the most recently written thing. And so they're interested not in being influenced by um, the study from pre previous poets, but by the echoes of their contemporaries and their peers. Those echoes to me seem a lot like, change to, to, to bungle the metaphor, soda pop. I mean, they, they go flat. And the things which are still in print are still carbonated. <laughs> I'm losing my metaphor. <laughs> are carbonated. And that those are the resources one should use to try to keep writing. Um, as it relates, I guess, to my own, you know, trying to figure out what I was trying to do, um, I was in awe of the marble monuments of poetry. And this is a struggle every artist has. You know, a visual artist goes into the gallery or goes into the museum and sees the the permanent exhibition and thinks, how do I get to that? But, but when you're at your canvas, you're nowhere near that. And so you've got to make one stroke after another, one mark after another. And when a poet goes to write and looks at the anthologies and sees Alice Notley's work or they sees Emily Dickinson's work, who's a, a real ancestor to her, um, and a literary ancestor, you think, well, how do I get to that? And you can't get to Emily Dickinson. <laughs> okay, she's unimitatable. Yeah. Um, but you're, but you're, what you're left with is the page you're working on with all of its failures. And you have to, you have to figure out what that's supposed to sound like. And I have found that, to answer your earlier question, how did I get to that, which I don't think I've gotten to, um, when I just try to follow my interests and not try to gauge what the outcome is. Um, my shorthand for it is, well, you'll say, what are you working on? And I'll say, oh, it's just a trifle. It's just nothing. And that creates distance for me, anyway, than saying, oh, I'm writing the, I'm writing the great American poem here. <laughs> okay. Right. And I may want to believe that, but really I'm just trying to figure out what's the verb going to be in this line. Yeah. So you would say that that um, learning solely through the ear isn't necessarily a, a doomed approach. No, it certainly works for anyone who does the Suzuki method to learn music. Yeah. Um, I, I teach imitation all the time because I think that what you're trying to do is, is cover 
in the musical sense, cover someone else's work so that your own particular style can come through. And we all heard covers of songs that sound like the original, and we think, oh, that's not that interesting a cover. But, you know, I have this great cover album of Bob Dylan songs sung by women, and I love those covers because they, none of them sound like Dylan. <laughs> okay. Katie Lang sing Dylan. Right. That's where it's at. And Maybe Patti Smith. Patti Smith. Will sound a little Dylan. She did. And, and even, like, even that's a really good, because the song, the Dylan she sang at the Nobel Awards where she was so nervous, she said, that she flubbed the line. Um, it seemed to me that she was trying to get so close to the Dylan version that once she got past that and, and chilled out, it sounded more like Patti Smith. Yeah. That might be a really good example of it. Though it's different. I mean, poets aren't writing oh, someone else's poem. I, I don't know. I, in the end, David, I think um, uh, you only have one take on the language. You only have one range of your... You only have a range for your voice. And you're interested in trying to... How much can you can you expand the range of your voice? Well, even in a small gap, even in a small, let's call it an inch, that's a ton. Hmm. That's a ton. Uh, and there's a lot to explore. It used to bug me when I'd read writers who felt like they were writing the same book over and over again or the same poem over and over again. I think, do something different. Come on. I love your work. Show me something different. Show me a jump shot. <laughs> you know, right? you know, shoot from, do something else. And later on, I realized, no, that's not the deal. They're still interested in that. That's their business. And when they put their novel or their poem in the kiln, it changes on them. And they're interested in that. And they didn't get it the way they wanted it, so they keep at it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's my experience to read them as they want to be taken, because they're still trying to figure out their identity as a writer. All right. So to go back to your identity as a writer, um, I'd love to end by circling back to where we be began. Uh, not the Ukraine or Iowa, but the Houston of your childhood that yeah. you left for Boston and Vermont and eventually Portland. For the Powell's blog, you, you wrote about uh, the three 500-year floods that have occurred in the last three consecutive years in, in Houston and that you really hadn't returned to Houston until last year to survey the changes for another book project. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I, I don't know if you would speak to um, the not looking back until now and what prompted looking back now. Well, when I left, I left a little under a cloud. and um, Well, under a cloud. Um, up to, of my own making, to be fair. Um, I needed to get out of that community. I needed to get on the road. I was, it wasn't like I was on the lamb, but I felt internally like I was on the lamb. And I was trying to go as far away as I possibly could. And that, the education of a young poet tells that part of the story without telling the other part. Um, and I went home uh, to Houston a few years back to give a reading. I think it was after um, a long high whistle, and um, an old old friend from this era when I grew up in the seventies. I left there when I was eighteen. Um, he contacted me and said, I, "I hear you're coming to town. I'd love to see you." 
I probably saw her between the time I was 18 and a couple of years ago when I was maybe 50, I'm a little older than 50 now, um, once in that 30-year period. Passing through Houston, my father still lives in Houston, but he lives so far away from that neighborhood that I, I never would go down there because I didn't want to spend a day not hanging around with my father. Um, so we have back and forth, nice to hear from you and so on. Then she says, um, uh, Linda wants to come to the reading. And I said, oh, great. Sure, bring her. There's another friend. And then she says, uh, Michael heard you're coming. He wants to come. I'm like, great. It, it, we thought maybe we should have a party you know, to welcome you back. And, um, and then the how would you feel <laughs> questions began. How would you feel if we had a party? You know, you haven't been here in a while. Or how would you feel if we invited so-and-so, all first names? And then I finally thought, well, why not? It's been almost 40 years. Well, how bad could it be? <laughs> how much trouble am I actually in? <laughs> and I agreed. And we went through names and, and um, all first names. Uh, I go give the reading. I'll try to speed this up. I go give the reading. Uh, she's there. We say hello. She says, here's the address to my house, which was in the neighborhood generally. And I looked at the address on the piece of paper, and I said, okay, I'll be there. And she says, do you know how to get there? And I said, yeah, I know how to get there. And she says, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm from here. <laughs> okay, I know exactly where this is. So I drive over there in my rental, and uh, I walk in, and there's three women approach me immediately. I recognize them immediately. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen them since I was a teenager. Hugs all around, and then just as casually as you and I earlier today said hello, one of them says to me, David, where have you been? Wow. <laughs> As if I had gone to Stop and Go one day 30 years ago to get beer from chips for everybody and just never came back. And finally I was back. Where have you been? We've been waiting for you. Yeah. That got up in my head a little bit, um, having finished this book. And when I finished this book, I was asking myself the question, well, why didn't you write about your childhood? Um, what was that about? What would, what would you have to ask to write about your childhood? And um, so the question, like, why I left is not that interesting to me. Uh, I left because I felt alien. Uh, I uninvited myself from a community, unwelcomed myself. Um, and I wanted to live a life without um, religious experience. And that's a noble. I suppose living a life in religious experience is a noble, but there are a lot of um, time cards to punch. Um, so I began to ask myself, well, why didn't you come back? You could have. I didn't think I could at the time, but you could have. And that's what I'm working on now. Hmm. So um, in order to tell why I didn't come back, I had to tell why I left. Uh, is so that, is that, that what we're going to see from you next, most likely? Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, perhaps. You're I'm becoming much, a, an accidental memoirist. I know. You know, what's really crazy to get to your question about um, study is the pleasures of working on nonfiction like this is I haven't spent 30 years thinking about how to do it. You know, uh, what I was saying about writing a poem, I have to release myself from my so-called knowledge and all the tools I've put in my garage to make decisions in poems. And then when I can, you know, not use them, I tend to, well, you're, so it's just like the diving you're trying to figure it out in the air, but you've got thousands of dives behind you that you've trained to make decisions with, even without thinking. 
writing this memoir and so on. Oh, this is a funny craft slash memoir. I didn't have any of that, and I and I kind of didn't seek it out. I'm too, I tried to write this book, Education of a Young Poet, and this new one as if it were a poem. I'm trying to use this, all the tools I know from poetry, yeah. but I'm just working in this other. I was going to say that. Mechanism. I mean, it's not just a poet's memoir of someone becoming a poet, but it feels like it has a a poet sensibility in the way it, the voices and the way the the movement happens through the book. Yeah, and I just those are the skills I have, and that's the training I have, and I'm just trying to, um, you know, if I, it's it's like you're a diver, but then you want to be a swimmer, and so you know you have to learn how to just you know swim fast. I guess that's yeah. how I look at it. But I really dive into the pool off the starting block really nicely. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm really good at that. Yeah. But then I have to swim fast, and I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess an accidental memoir. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, that place in in Texas is disappearing in a way physically because of the storms, the floods, and um. My, my question is, though, who, when I put myself physically there, who am I? Am I the man who departed, or am I the boy still there? And where do those two collide, join, separate? Those are the kind of questions I'm curious about in this new thing I'm working on. Well, there's something very, I think, generous about the way in which you've invited all of these influences, um, the lineage, ancestral yeah. and the literary <clears throat> lineage, as part of who you are, rather than sort of against the idea of of individual genius that you're sitting down and being struck by lightning, and that yeah. the words come out of a void. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I love that uh, uh, movie. Uh, it's, it's about Woody Allen, and um, and uh, some uh, some New York Jewish lady, maybe it was an aunt of his. They're sitting. You know, there's this scene. They're sitting in a restaurant, and and someone comes to him and says, "Oh, you're Woody Allen," and shakes his hand. And, and she says something to the effect of, look, you didn't do this all on your own, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just put some right in this place. <laughs> well, it was great having you back on oh, the show so today. Uh, thanks, David. I appreciate it. We're talking today to poet and memoirist David <laughs> Weisspiel about his latest book, The Education of a Young Poet. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.